0: Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance of forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. I'm going to send to you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of God.
1: After the crucifixion of Jesus, after the death of Jesus, the disciples, they were in despair. Their lives were effectively ruined. And so the risen Jesus does three things in this passage that shapes the lives of the disciples forever. And because he's the risen Jesus, he can do the same to us right now. Now, what are these three things? Jesus Christ addresses the disciples' doubts. He addresses their uh, desires, and he addresses their despair. Three Ds, very simple, right? He addresses their doubts, their desires, their despair. First, Jesus Christ addresses the disciples' doubts. How does he do this? He appeals to their senses. He reasons with them, And so we need to let the word of God reason with us. Verse 38, Jesus asks, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. Verse 41, he says, do you have something to eat? Repeatedly in this passage, Jesus appeals to their senses, to their sight, to their hearing, to their sense of touch. And and what's he saying? I'm really alive. I'm really raised from the dead. You're not just having some sort of spiritual experience. You're not hallucinating because nobody hallucinates in groups. I'm really alive. I'm really raised from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Now, that means Jesus literally, physically, historically, not metaphorically, not symbolically, rose from the dead. And the Apostle Paul says this is of first importance. You can't cross any spiritual bridge. You will never grow as a Christian unless you first believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Dr. Tim Keller says this very plainly, as he always does, very simply, very pedantically, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you have to accept everything that he said. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then why worry about any of all that he has said? In other words, everything hinges on the reality of the resurrection. Now, modern people have a great deal of trouble with this because most people today don't buy into the idea of a physical or bodily resurrection. They don't. They say, look, I don't really believe that these are actual eyewitness accounts. These had to have been fictional accounts. There's no way we can tell. These are fictional accounts that were written by people who wanted everyone to believe. But none of this could be true. Now think about this. There are two major problems with that. One, scholars will tell you across the board that the Gospels were not the way the Gospels were written. They are not the way you would write a fictional account. Not in those days, not today. You wouldn't write that then. You wouldn't write that now if it were fiction. Because if you wanted to tell a fictional story, if you wanted to write a fictional account that you wanted people to read at least, you would inject drama. You would inject action. There would be lights. There would be a dramatic return. When Superman died... When he returns in the justice league movie many of you guys probably saw the justice league movie it was a terrible movie but you know nevertheless right when superman returns in the justice league movie what happens they're kind of doing this stuff and then all of a sudden wonder woman stops and she looks up right and the camera zooms in and she says he's back it was clear because there were lights and there was power And the roads and everything was destroyed and Superman flies up into the air, right? And there's this battle and there's this drama. That's not what happens here. That's not what happens here. Instead, you have Mary Magdalene who would have been the worst eyewitness because Mary Magdalene was an outcast, number one. And secondly, women's testimonies, they were not acceptable in a court of law because women had very low social value in those days. So that would have been the worst person to write about as, a, as an eyewitness. But when Mary Magdalene saw him, she, couldn't even re- she didn't even recognize him. And what does Jesus do here? He appears and he says, uh, nothing dramatic. Do you have food? <laughs> That's what he says. And verse 42, they gave him a piece of boiled fish. They go point by point, and he eats with them. Verse 43, legends are not written this way. Uh, Legends in those days were not written this way. Fiction was not written like this. If you were making up a story about the resurrected Jesus you wouldn't include these minor, boring, mundane details like this. In fact, that genre of literature where you do inject some sort of realistic kind of feel to the writing, the day-to-day inclusios in a person's life, that didn't happen. That genre only existed for a few hundred years. So why is it here? Why is it here? And the only sensible answer is that Luke was writing news. Luke was writing news. This must have happened. Other people say, well, you know, th- today we have a modern scientific worldview that says that bodily resurrections are impossible. Back then, people believed in miracles. They were credulous people, but we're a much more advanced culture today. We're incredulous culture today. Look at the text. Jesus appears and he says, It is I myself. Touch me. Right? Did they say, after they touched him, they saw him, they touched him, did Luke write, and they said, see, I told you, I knew this was going to happen, now I get it. No, it actually says that they were joyful, but they didn't believe. They still didn't believe, you see. After he spoke to them, verse 41, they still did not believe, and this makes sense. Theologian N.T. Wright, he says this, it cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. Resurrection for them was something that might happen to all on that great future occasion when God brought history to an end and a whole new world was renewed. Just a few days ago, we had a Pulitzer Prize winner Joe Meacham write in the New York Times this is what he writes. So singular was the proposition that a particular person had been resurrected from the dead and that belief in him would lead to eternal salvation. In other words, it was very unique. It's not like people were saying this and believing this and wanting this to happen. It would hardly have been the early Christians' first choice of narratives to share. Why argue something so improbable and so unexpected unless they believed it, that they believed that it actually happened the way they told the story? In other words, the idea of a bodily resurrection was not even conceivable to Jesus' disciples. Both modern worldviews, ancient worldviews say that the resurrection is impossible. It wasn't the worldview for the Greeks and the Romans, the irreligious society in those days. It wasn't for the Jews themselves in the religious society of those days, and it certainly wasn't the worldview for us today. It wouldn't have made sense to talk about it, write about it, confess it, Die for it, unless it happened. Chuck Colson, he was once, uh, he served in the Nixon uh, term, the Nixon presidency. He was known as the hatchet man for President Nixon. He was involved in the Watergate scandal, later on became a Christian. Chuck Colson writes this, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, Then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles kept this lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Why am I telling you this? Let the text, let the resurrection, let the person of Jesus argue with you. Let it reason with you. Don't just dismiss it. You know, they, dis- they overlooked Jesus before the crucifixion, and as a result, he died. And as a result, they were overlooking salvation. Don't overlook him again. Okay? Jesus Christ, by appearing to his disciples, addressed their doubts. Second, He satisfies the desires of their hearts. How? Verses 41 to 43, he eats with them. Now, we know that as you read the text, you know that because he ate with them, it was definitely clearly something that he was trying to show that he is alive. He is here. He is with them. But when you eat with someone in the ancient times, it was very important. In the ancient times, when people ate with you, it was very meaningful because there was no electricity back then. And so the evening hours were very precious, To bring someone in to eat with them was to invite them not just to a meal, but into the most important, the most valuable part of your day. It meant that you had to be an intimate friend. They wanted to have deep connection, deep relationship with you, to invite you into the most valuable, the most precious part of the day. Basically, what they're saying is you're in. You're welcome. You are in. Jesus Christ in Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, lets me in. I will eat with them, right? That's what he says. When someone dies, you try very hard to keep the memory of them alive. I know. My father passed away when I was very young. There's a recent movie uh, called Three Billboards. It's a long title, Three Billboards from Ebbing, Missouri. And uh, it's an Oscar contender this past season. It's about a mother who tragically loses her daughter. And uh, there's this one very brief vignette where she opens her daughter's room, you see it for the first time, and you see the memory, all the stuff in her room, laid neatly, the bed perfectly made, all her clothes neatly laid out, everything arranged perfectly, as if she were still alive. It's your way of saying, I still feel as if you're with me. You're hanging on in a way. You don't go into that room, you don't touch that room. But when you do that, it only makes you long for that person more. Now think about this, notice as unique as Jesus' claims were, as singular, according to Joe Meach in the New York Times, as singular as his claims were, today, we don't even know where Jesus' tomb is. You don't find that odd? Lots of examples of leaders, martyrs, you go, their tombs are practically enshrined. They're venerated people. But there's no evidence that they ever did that, that the disciples ever did that for Jesus. Why? How can you lose the tomb of Jesus? And here's why. Because the tomb didn't matter anymore. He rose again. If someone you love dies, suddenly their room, their belongings, they become kind of sacred, like in that movie, Three Bullports. Remember his outfit. I remember exactly how he dressed. He wore this outfit every day. She wore this shirt. Oh, she loved those shoes. Because you don't have him anymore. And it's so your way of kind of holding on. But if you're alive, does his outfit matter? Do her shoes matter? Did that outfit she loved matter? Why didn't the grave clothes matter? Because they had him. They had Jesus himself. Now, a lot of us grow up with the idea that if you could find that one person who would love you completely and wholly, it's going to make everything right. We fantasize about that in our single lives. We look for that person. We look for that ideal person in that person. That if you can find that person, if you find that person, that person, they cannot bear the weight of the expectations that you have for them because they're broken people too, you see. So it doesn't matter how hard they try. They will never be able to fulfill your expectations. They will never be able to make you whole. We look for that person, that prince, that knight in shining armor. But the thing is, they will never make you whole. There's only one person. There's only one person who can make you whole. It's only Jesus Christ. Like all the great heroes, Jesus Christ, like all the great heroes, only greater. Like all the great protagonists, only greater. Like all the world's great princes and fairy tales, great princes, only greater. Only the greatest of the kings, the person that you've been looking for all your life, everything you need, he's alive. He is alive he is present all of them rolled up into one and yet jesus by appearing before his disciples eating with his disciples bringing them in being intimate with them what he's saying is you can have me not just fantasize about me not just imagine about me you can really have me you can eat with me you're in you're loved because of the resurrection We now know that our great lover, our great prince, the great king that we've been looking for all our lives, the one that we need is alive, which means his promises, his claims, they're true. It's not just a promise of intimacy, it's real intimacy. It's not just a promise of new life, it's new life. It's real life, it's It's the assurance of it. Let's eat, he says, come in. Because of the resurrection, we finally have the love that we've been looking for all our lives. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of everything we've ever desired that could make us whole and complete. And so he addresses our doubts with his word. He addresses our desires with his presence. Lastly, he deals with our despair. How does he do this? Verse 40, he shows them his hands and he shows them his feet. What's the response? They are amazed. They are in disbelief, but there's joy, it says, because of their joy and amazement. Why did he do that? Why doesn't Jesus say, come on, guys, look at me. Look at my eyes. It's me. Why does he show him his hands and his feet? It's because of his wounds. If Jesus' body was glorified, why are the wounds still there? Now, think about this. There are some stories that in spite of all the bad things happening, Something good always comes from it, and you're like, wow, that was a great story. But the best kind of stories, this is scholars, scholars say this, you know, who critique all the literature that's been written over centuries, they say the best kind of stories are when bad things not just result in good things, but the bad things are part of the happy ending. They're a part of it. They're subsumed in the joy and the celebration to come. But these bad things are taken up it's bad. It gets worse. But it gets taken up, and then the joy comes from it, is birthed from it. It comes through that brokenness. Now, there's an old movie. Remember the movie Signs? A lot of movies today. In the movie Signs, a lot of bad things happen. First, the protagonist's wife is killed in a car accident, a horrible car accident. Then you have the protagonist's brother who had a great baseball career ahead of him, but his career, his career is just a mess. You have the protagonist's son, who is ill. He's got terrible asthma. You have the protagonist's daughter, who is OCD. So she's drinking glasses of water, but then after a couple sips, doesn't like it because she says it's dirty. And so she leaves these glasses everywhere in the house, and he spends the week cleaning up these glasses in the house. Life is just an absolute disaster. Everyone is losing faith, and then aliens invade. Aliens invade the world. That's drama. That's fiction, right? Aliens uh, invade the world. Bad thing after bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. Life is just an utter disaster. Everyone is losing faith. Everything is getting worse. He's lost faith. He was a priest. Suddenly at the end, there's joy. There's joy. Not just because there's redemption in spite of these bad things happening, but every single one of those bad things became part of the redeeming story in the end. He says to his brother, the baseball bat is kind of hung up there, kind of enshrined. He says, swing away. That's how they beat the aliens, right? And then the glasses of water that's sitting there, he starts swinging away at the glasses of water, and it spills on the aliens, and then it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. ah, I'm melting, and they all die, right? That's what happens, right? Life flashes, and all of a sudden, all those sorrows make sense. They had to go through it for the redemption. Remember Lord of the Rings? If you don't like movies, Lord of the Rings at the end, Frodo. He says, Gandalf. He wakes up, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. He goes, wait, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened? The greatest narratives are the joy At the end, subsuming all the despair, the sorrows are part of the joy. The joy comes through the sorrows, through the despair, through the brokenness. It leads to a greater joy, an increased joy. What does that mean? One day, every despair will be bound up by the Father, and he will use those things to increase our joy. That should make our sorrows bearable today. Jesus shows his disciples his scars, the nails. Why? Because up until three days prior, The disciples had in their minds, when Jesus becomes king, I'm going to be in the cabinet. I'm going to be part of that administration. It's going to be great. And then the nails came. Then the nails came. Those nails. When those nails went into Jesus' hands, when those nails went into Jesus' feet, you might as well put it into their hearts because it ruined their lives. Their lives were over. But then Jesus returns, and he shows them the scars. Why? because what they thought ruined their lives actually saved their lives. You see that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us not joy in spite of the wounds of Jesus, but joy through the wounds of Jesus, joy through the despair, through the sorrows, through the brokenness. And if you could do that through Jesus Christ to save the entire world, surely he will work through your wounds. Surely he will work through your brokenness and your despair. Notice, this isn't Your pastor saying, forget about your suffering, kind of deny it, neglect it, don't worry about it, leave it behind, let's just have joy. Look, Jesus still bore scars. He still had scars. That means even in our redeemed bodies, we will bear scars. Even Jesus himself never forgot his scars. He doesn't leave them behind. But it shows us how God's salvation works, not just to make us forget, He doesn't say that to make us forget our troubles and our tragedies. If that's the case, if that were really the case, Karl Marx was right, that Christianity is just another religion and an opium for the people, for the masses, to help you cope and to help you escape your troubles. The gospel shows us that God's salvation works through despair, makes sense out of our despair. You may not even understand it. There are things that some of you have experienced that are just unthinkable, And I don't want to diminish any of that suffering. Jesus bore scars, which means that he's not saying, hey, leave it all behind. Forget about your scars. That's not what he says. He says, I will help you make sense out of it. I will redeem you through it. And one day all those scars, all your tears will be bound up and subsumed. They will be subsumed by the joy that was coming when I return." And he will turn those scars into sources of joy so much that any joy will be greater because of our scars. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch me, he says. That means that the greatest of your failures, the greatest of your losses, friends, I lost a father at a very young age. I lost four children through miscarriages in the last several years. I've been betrayed by the closest of friends, the closest of partners. And I can tell you there is joy at the end. You don't need to hear that from me. You've experienced sorrows. You've experienced tragedies. You've experienced sorrows and despair. When you look to the cross, what do you see? You see the ultimate despair suffered by Christ so that we can be birthed into that joy. Let the brokenness of Christ, let the wounds of Christ, look at his hands and feet. Let the wounds of Christ bind up all of your sorrows so that you could see them one day subsumed by the joy that is there in him. In verse 48, notice he commissions them, right? Because uh, these these are his friends who had abandoned him, rejected him, betrayed him. And yet their failures, their guilt, their losses, they all served as fuel for the coming joy. This is what gives us meaning in life. This is what gives us purpose. Verse 48, he says this. Jesus sends them out and he says, you are witnesses of these things. What is he saying? I want you to go out. I want you to live in the world completely shaped by what you saw. They saw the risen Christ. They saw the resurrection. And so they saw the greatest tragedy I lost a father, but the infinite father, the infinite God lost his own son. Take every great intimate relationship, take every relationship that you've ever known to be intimate, every relationship type that could be the most intimate in your life, put them all together and they are only a small figment, a small fragment of intimacy experienced and enjoyed between the father God and his son. And he gave it up. The Trinity was torn and ripped apart on the cross as the father had forsaken his son, and his son looked to his father and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he suffered, and he bled, and he died, and everyone fled, and everyone mourned. Their lives were over, but God used that ultimate tragedy to be the source of our ultimate salvation and our ultimate joy, and by sending you, he's saying, this is just the beginning. I'm going to renew everything I'm going to renew everything. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to cleanse the world of everything that is broken one day. Disease, injustice, death, and sin. I'm going to do it through you. Just like I did it through my own son. That's the meaning of the church. Everything will be shaped by the resurrection of Jesus. Everything wrong will one day become undone. Will you apply God's redemptive purpose in what you do today, in your work, in your families? Will you apply God's redemptive purpose in your life personally? Let it bind up your wounds and your sorrows and your despair. Jesus Christ addresses our doubts. He addresses, satisfies our desires. He deals and overturns our despair. Look to the empty tomb. Let the gospel shape your doubts, your desires, your despair. Let's celebrate together the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray.